I bring my perspectives, which are, you know, creating things that are very out of the box and kind of pushing against social norms and really like kind of asking big questions. And also, importantly, using humor. I mean, I think a lot of my trans communities are so incredible at using humor to go, you know what, stuff is really rough. I mean, in the world at the moment, stuff is really rough. And so, in you know, and that's something I, I particularly feel strongly about this work, climate change and other small talk, is to use humour and satire and absurdity to get in sideways. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Redmond. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Sonny Drake. Sonny is an award-winning playwright whose innovative and diverse works have been showcased in over 60 cities worldwide. He's also the leader of Climate Change and Other Small Talk, the podcast, and his journey was kind of unconventional because he taught himself the craft of theater making due to a lack of inclusion for trans individuals in a traditional theater setting. Sonny, welcome to Truth Tastes Funny. Hi, Hirsch. It's great to be on the show. It's great to have you here. Let's start with, with the self-taught theater making and what you confronted in that situation. You know, Tell us a little bit about wh- where you grew up and how that theater experience started. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in Australia and despite growing up in the third largest city, I literally did not meet another person who I knew was out as trans until my 20s. And I grew up in an entire void of transcultural content in any medium. I I had no access to books. There were no trans characters on TV except for that kind of, you know, the token unnamed trans woman character. It wasn't even really a token character. It was just a trope who would often exist in a kind of, you know, 90s or early noughts comedy basically to sort of there would be a a cis guy goes into a bar and meets a woman who you know who then it turns out is a trans woman and it's the kind of the butt of the joke so it's never sort of any kind of depth of character or anything other than that story or trope so in books in movies in theater an entire void of transcultural content and in fact then when I became really interested in theater and considered going to theater school at the time I would have been cast in women's roles which now that I'm so much further into my journey would I think would be really fun to be cast in women's roles women's are super cool and awesome at the time for me that wouldn't have felt you know validating or okay for me so yeah I didn't feel like theater school was a place for me theater schools are certainly changing a lot now but back in in that time you know it wouldn't have been a place that would have felt like a good learning environment for me so I just really you know every time I was either 
interested in something, intrigued by something, confused about something, working through something in my life, it would bust out into a performance piece. And slowly, you know, I built enough of a body of work over the years that then I went from performing in backyards and basements and living rooms and bathtubs and all the rest to then being able to access institutions. And now sort of, you know, worked my way through to then having one of my works premiere last year at at Canada's largest theatre company and one of the world's largest English theatre festivals. So really kind of just worked my way, you know, through making work and falling flat on my face and picking myself up and making more work. And yeah, that's how I've gotten to this point today. So with with the theatre community, you know, we always think of the theatre community as being very accepting and very experimental, open, whether it comes, whether it's artistic expression or lifestyle or identification. We have come over the years to think of the theater community as, you know, a safe haven, as a welcoming uh, place. Was it because of your geographical location or where was it that you were trying to kind of break into theater or find training in theater? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just my geographical location. And it's not that, I mean, theater people, you're right, are often, you know, certainly on the kind of edge of like pushing, you know, for social change and social justice, et cetera. But still this, you know, theater folks are not, you know, still part of their context. And so, you know, some of the changes we're seeing now are because we've now, we've had, you know, a lot of traction in the mainstream around trans movements. I mean, you know, we're seeing now a a huge backlash with, you know, we kind of took a lot of steps forward in terms of trans visibility, trans rights, et cetera. And now we're taking a lot of steps back with literally hundreds of anti-trans bills, you know, around North America and beyond. So just to say, yes, you know, I mean, I love people in my theater community. My theater community is amazing and they're not immune to the context that all of us operate in. And so, you know, this uh, many of the similar sort of shifts have needed to happen in the theater community as outside of it. What was your childhood experience like in such a small community? I mean, you know, for me, I think I had a very sort of trans and non-binary childhood in the way that even though I didn't have the language for that, but I had parents who really just kind of let me sort of do pretty much whatever, certainly as a very young child. And then, you know, when I got to school, I really buried a lot of kind of trans impulses because like I said, there was no, I had no language. I had no people around me. I had no frameworks to understand, which is certainly, you know, I mean, now I make work that is a lot broader uh, about many different things. My earlier career was certainly about kind of really exploring and expanding the kind of the canon of work, you know, by trans folks and, and about trans folks. And now also, I mean, what I feel really strongly about now is, you know, I think that the coming out stories are certainly still important. I think also, though, what I feel strongly in my work is I want to see trans characters tackling climate change or dealing with housing stuff or, you know, looking at alternative economies. And I want to see a wide range of characters, both trans and non-trans, you know, getting to do the rest of our lives rather than sort of having our work always reduced to a very narrow slice of our lives about physical transition, for example, or about our childhoods, etc. So yeah, I think I'm excited to be able to bring my perspectives, even when I make work that is not necessarily 
necessarily about quote unquote trans themes. I, I do feel like I bring my perspectives, which are creating things that are very out of the box and kind of pushing against social norms and really like kind of asking big questions. And also, importantly, using humor. I mean, I think um, a lot of my trans communities are so incredible at using humor to go, you know what, stuff is really rough. I mean, in the world at the moment, stuff is really rough. And so, in you know, and, and that's something I, I particularly feel strongly about this work, climate change and other small talk, is to use humor and satire and absurdity to get in sideways. So many people are flicking through the news and we all care about climate change. You know, most people know what's happening and we want to see things change, but we turn on the news and it's depressing. It's like, you know, we're looking at a really dire state and we have to talk about that and we have to be real about yeah. that. But this project and a lot of my work really aims to get in sideways by kind of going, let's have a laugh about it. And then we can talk about the really serious thing because we're sort of relaxed and laughing and we have some kind of coping tools through humor to get in sideways. Yeah, and I think that sideways entrance to difficult topics is, you know, what this podcast is about in many ways. Truth Tastes Funny is is born of that notion that stuff stuff that's uncomfortable is the stuff that we need to talk about, but we have to diffuse it somehow. I wanted to do a write a feature comedy about nuclear proliferation, but do it in such a way where you know it's about. I never wrote it, but it was a few years ago. My wife works in that area and it's so heavy and it's so, you know, difficult, both climate and nuclear. And, you know, these are things that people don't want to talk about. I envisioned a guy who was retired, who had kind of given up his family for his career. And now he's an alcoholic and he's it's his birthday. And the only person who seems to remember is someone he used to work with at one of the nuclear silos. And it turns into this kind of action adventure of trying to save the world and shut down the nuclear and all that stuff. But, you know, couched in couched in comedy, because what what, what else do you do? So tell me more about the podcast and uh. you've been trying to do with it. Yeah. Well, so it's a theatrical podcast, so it's short audio drama. So where rather than sort of like an audio book where, where a narrator is reading out something that was clearly meant to be for the page, right. this is actors, incredible dynamic professional actors performing these audio dramas. And it's nine short episodes from created by nine different teams around the world. And I'll tell you a little bit about how the idea came about because it's yeah. sort of important in the ethos of the project. So I was, you know, feeling super concerned as most of us are about climate change and decided, right, I'm going to write a full length play. I got accepted into this residency on a tall ship in the high Arctic. So way north of Scandinavia, just 10 degrees south of the North, north Pole. Went on this tall ship with 30 artists and scientists and we went and visited the world's northernmost climate research station in New Allison. And so up there, you know, scientists are doing their, you know, their work collecting local weather data and looking very cool in their lab coats and science get-ups. And this, that local information is really important in understanding the local conditions of climate change. But it's also 
Equally important, they combine their data together with hundreds of other weather stations around the world. And it's that really local with that really global that makes, you know, that gives us that important information about, you know, what's going on and what needs to happen. And so I thought, why not do the same thing with artists? So rather than me writing this full length play or even me writing, you know, a series of short plays, I invited instead nine teams of artists from around the world to create their own local audio drama, which really digs into sort of, you know, local perspectives and themes and then present them together in this in this podcast to kind of see what's the interaction between these stories and what's the relationship between them, what's the differences and also then have this kind of podcast that we can it's like a worldwide tour for your ears minus the carbon footprint and the screaming kids and you know it's a way for us to kind of dip into these climate stories around the world to then also utilize in our local communities to try to really kind of bring people into uh, climate movements and to taking action i love that and also you know it's funny now there's a a move on the part of YouTube to get more engaged with podcasts and the video component of podcasts is becoming more prominent. And that's great in terms of getting the shows out in front of people because some people just love video. But I also love the resurgence of radio, so to speak, the treat for your ears. The You know, I, I've listened to a lot of the true life, let's just call them, because they're not all true crime. There's plenty that are true crime, but the true life narratives that play so well on podcast series. And I love that there's no video component. I love that it's theatrical and you can imagine it. I was just telling my daughter about artists and how that works and how you create sound effects for movies, you know, and I love the audio aspect of it. Well, what's so wild, Hirsch, is that it's almost more vivid what we can do, and this is where sort of I love the the relationship between theatre and audiences where you are in a contract with an audience that says, we know this is not real, you are going to help us with your imagination. But unlike live theatre where you have a kind of visual component or unlike film or TV with that visual component that is, you know, that already engages that sense, when you have only audio, the audience actually has a much more active imagination and can really fill out those worlds in such a, mm-hmm. a powerful way. And sound is so evocative. You can bring someone into, you know, radio plays are often described as movies for your ears. You can bring someone into a very vivid array of senses just using audio. And, you know, and particularly also with climate change and other small talk what i'm excited about is also the interaction between audio so this podcast series and live events so in-person events so each of these nine companies around the world and then also will be an offering to other groups theaters climate groups schools etc to utilize this audio only thing to bring people together in uh, real time in in person spaces, and <clears throat> it's autumn, think of it as sort of almost akin to you know back pre TV families used to sit around a radio and they would listen to radio stories and or people sitting around a campfire and telling story. So there's this really interesting interaction, and I've done it before with a with a 
previous work of mine during the pandemic, where a company hosted a live listening party of one of these radio dramas. And it was actually really fascinating what happened because people at first didn't have anywhere to look, like no stage to look at. They actually had to be together with each other, listening to these audio dramas in a really different way. And so it became a much more kind of social experience. And that's what we're really going for as well with this podcast is, yes, there's this whole way you can interact on your own and listen to it, you know, while you're walking the dog or doing the cleaning, but you can also, you know, having these kind of live events that bring the podcast sort of out of the audio only realm and and experience it together in these in-person events too. I love that. It would be great if we could revive that aspect of listening, you know, listening Mm -hmm. together, listening parties, families, you know, you get that image of the, of a family, a group of people in front of a a radio, looking at the radio as though it were the TV, right? Looking at each other. And everybody's actually got a different vision in their head of what is really happening there. But we're sharing this, as you alluded to, the suspense of disbelief, the contract with, with the audience. What are the plays? You mentioned that initially in your playwriting, you were obviously expressing a lot of what you'd personally gone through, then you're expanding it into issues and subjects. But what works inspired your sense of humor when you're writing? Are there influences and things that you finally got to be exposed to that you were impressed upon? Well, I'm actually very, my, my creative work is quite influenced by 90s Australian cinema. So I don't know if you know Muriel's Wedding, yes, Strictly sure. Ballroom, yeah, The yeah. Castle, a lot of those shows that use very sharp satire. So basically use this sort of dialed up version of reality that, it, you know, can sort of seem absurd or slightly ridiculous at first until you're, you know, you're laughing along because it feels absurd. And then suddenly, boom, like, you know, we've gone to somewhere very deep that you actually have gone from laughing quite hysterically to, you know, a really, uh, devastating moment and then we get eased back out on the other side with you know comedy and humor again but the parameters i gave for climate change and other small talk are i you know either any form of humor satire or absurdity so we've got quite a wide range of works in this series um from political satires like okay what happens when the u.s military tries to go green And, you know, you might know that the U.S. military are a huge um, one, you know, a a very significant polluter and emitter on the world scale. And so, you know, could things get much worse? Well, spoiler alert, yes, they do get a lot worse in this satire when trying to go green. Or we have, you know, in off the coast of India, down in a submarine, two officers receiving kind of quite absurd orders to seek and destroy climate change and it really is sort of this satirical way to explore kind of inaction on the part of world leaders and differing responsibilities of of different nations and so that's sort of on the satirical end and then we have the kind of witty banter end which is for example an indigenous playwright in australia has wrote this very endearing and fun piece about nana and pop who are learning about climate change from their granddaughter and are absolutely horrified to learn about cows farting and other <laughs> things like that. So we've kind of got the other end of the, the right. spectrum there as well. Right. Are you familiar with uh, Tim Minchin? Tim Minchin no. is the Australian. 
He's a composer and a comedian, and he wrote the music and lyrics for Matilda for the stage. Okay, right, right, right. Matilda, yes, yes, of course. It's yeah. a very kind of, uh, you know, anti-establishment sense of humor. It's sometimes yep. dark, but it's always biting. And that's been his way of, you know, comedians, it's one thing for them to kind of speak up and just, but there's something about music and something about mm-hmm. lyrics that, Again, lets us get in. I love that expression sideways. It le- it allows us to get in sideways to a topic that we may not want to talk about, you know, something that may be too challenging. What do you think? Um, what do you see ahead of us with our kind of still these heads in the sand? Like you would on the one hand, you would think people would be running around literally screaming that the sky is falling, but because we don't see the sky falling climate wise, we do actually, I mean, we've got yeah. snow in California. We've got, yeah. we've got crazy weather everywhere. We've got intensified and increased frequency of natural disasters. I don't know what more we really, you know, need, but we're not, we're still not running around with our, with our uh, voices raised in a in a Armageddon type panic, what do you know about that's happening in the let's say the next few years? Yeah, and it's a really interesting point you're making too. I've been really fascinated by um, research that sort of that suggests okay. Well, on the one hand, we have the media that says okay, in times of disaster, we turn Lord of the Flies, which mm-hmm. is actually there's a bunch of research which suggests literally completely the opposite that in times of emergency, human beings actually become more collective, more will cooperative, um, et cetera. So there's clearly then something getting in the way of that, some things, many things getting in the way of that impulse. And, you know, because really what we need and what this podcast is a firm believer in is that we need to get together to to act collectively. It's not enough to kind of end, you know, and we have a whole impact campaign going on with our podcast as well. So that we're, you know, the idea is really to kind of have people have a really fun time with listening to the episodes and then provide very concrete kind of ways that people can become involved in climate movements because and and shifting away from the suggestions are not recycle more or you know do something on your individual level even though you know individual actions are of course important as well the suggestions are really about looking at how can we come together because people on mass are going to you know increasingly need to organize around you know policy solutions and around these larger things because the problems are happening on a larger systemic level it's not one individual that is causing the problem it's you know it's how we've sort of organized so many of our and institutions and really you know fundamentally coming down to you know our relationship with the earth is really out of whack, you know, so really needing to actually 
shift on quite a foundational and an enormous level, re, you know, recalibrate our relationship away from seeing the planet as our ATM that we can just withdraw from indefinitely. Yeah. And instead kind of really re-looking at how do we actually be part of this, um, of this ecosystem in a way that looks after ourselves and the ecosystem. And so, you know, like organizations like one of our campaign folks who we are lifting up through the project, for example, 350.org or Dogwood BC or the Wilderness Committee. And uh, folks can look on our website, which is uh, climatechangeandothersmalltalk.com. And we've got a very concrete take action section that points people towards these campaigns and projects and that they can get involved with. But I mean, but I think also to say, I mean, there's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is the kind of change we're talking about, it has to happen on a massive scale and quite quickly. Mm -hmm. The good news is because there is so much change that needs to happen, literally pick something that you're passionate about. It could be anything, any area of life that you're passionate about. There is something, some way to get together with groups of people to organize around that very particular thing in terms of climate, because the climate impacts every area of our life. I mean, yeah. you, our beloved household pets, you know, um, ticks and other kind of parasites and bacteria are migrating to areas they've never been seen before. Football games are being delayed by extreme weather events. You know, growing cycles are being impacted. Like, like literally, if you're a gardener, if you're in anything that you're passionate and interested about, there yeah. is a way that climate change is impacting that thing. And therefore, there is also a way that you can get together with people who you want to hang out with and be around and organize around that particular thing. But the overarching theme here seems to be, let's do this together. This isn't about exactly. everybody do their part. We're, we're beyond the everybody do their part. Yeah, that's great. Don't stop composting. But, you know, let's get together and organize and let's figure these things out together. And also, I think, Sonny, that when people start to work together, they accept reality a little, a little more because, yep. you know, I could do my composting without anybody knowing about it which reduces the amount of awareness and investment that we all have in, a, in solutions, you know, everybody yep. quietly doing their own thing or not, you know? Yeah, yep. um, absolutely. So, yeah. And that everyone do their part still applies in the collective area. Like, you know, it's not that everyone needs to kind of try to save the planet single-handedly. There's almost a relief in working collectively with people right. because it means it's not all up to you. It means you get the, the nourishment, you get the ideas, you get the community. And I mean, you know, we are in a, an epidemic of loneliness, a lot of people feeling very isolated and lonely, right. and also a lot of people, you know, struggling with um, a lack of kind of, you know, describing that they're not, they don't feel satisfied or happy. And, and so looking at kind of like what can give us meaning rather than necessarily even happiness, what can give us meaning and purpose? And, you know, we have this kind of thing going on on a massive scale that is actually an opportunity to bring people together to do that thing I was saying about in times of emergency where actually a natural human impulse is to work together collectively. 
um, you know, to so really sort of removing some of the things that get in the way of us coming together and working collectively. And to do that, we're going to need to start to organize and we're going to need to make mistakes and yeah. mess up and do things really badly because part this, that's part of the point is we need to learn how to do this because we've forgotten. Or when I say we, many of us, you know, have forgotten right. how to, um, you know, and, and I put myself in that category too. I need to, you know, be learning, relearning how to kind of engage with, um, you know, collective groups of people and how to rewrite my relationship with the planet. Now, what about the thing that I always come back to when we talk about climate? And I do think it's so it's I, I don't want us to be paralyzed by the enormity of the of the situation or the crisis. And I think, again, working together helps get us out of that. Okay, we're not, I'm not alone. We're not alone. We have each other. We can do something. We can collectively do something. What about the powers that, uh, that are dead set, it seems, on thwarting progress in this area that are so committed to denial and thwarting the effort? Uh, you know, what are they thinking? What are these people thinking that they're somehow not going to be affected by it? What what what's your take on that, Sonny? Yeah, I mean, I think for a starters to put our finger on and say it's a very very small minority of people who are the powers to be who are thwarting efforts, and that small minority of people, I think, I mean, who knows? I think are more invested and interested in their own short term profit and gain or. You know, and I mean, we see, in fact, that people who have more resources are more able to weather, you know, climate impacts. Yeah. They're not not impacted, but in the shorter term and in the longer term, uh, you know, everybody is going to be impacted. It's also when we talk right. about climate justice, some people are differently impacted. So I think a very small minority of people also not present to the fact that there is no getting out, even with a lot of resources, you still might be demolished by a hurricane. That's just a reality of yeah. or an earthquake of, of, of uh, sorry, or, or, you know, so that's just sort of an incorrect relationship to your own, you know, mortality in, in any case. But a small minority of people who are then with, you know, a lot using a lot of resources to manipulate masses of people into acting against their own interests. So, you know, we yeah. see then, for example, the right really targeting a lot of poor and working class communities into policies which don't in any way benefit poor and working class yeah. communities, but really using and playing on people's, playing on hot button cultural topics or playing on fears or attempting to connect into values, like connecting into values, for example, of family and twisting mm -hmm. that value to, you know, make policies that are against people's own best interests seem enticing. So I think that like it's on the one hand, the good news is it's a very small minority of people who are manipulating a lot more people into, um, you know, not acting or into acting in, in ways that are not helping. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But so that's, you know, the good news is that it's a very small minority of people. The bad news, obviously, then is that they have a lot of resources. And so that is having a way outsized impact. But it also means that, you know, there's an opportunity to bring people together to organize in in different ways and to you know because i'm very convinced that most people care about the climate most people care about uh, their families most people care about their communities and don't want to see us destroying 
our habitats, our environments, our pets, our animal friends, our, you know, our communities. And I think that that is the wake up of, you know, that is happening at the moment. And there's a real opportunity to channel that awareness and that waking up into action and organize us all together to really figure out, you know, um, how are we going to tackle this? And when I say figure out, I mean, we actually have a lot of the solutions already. Right. It's a matter of kind of figuring out how are we going to put these into policy? How are we going to get the buy-in for on a policy level and on a larger systemic level? How are we going to get that buy-in to, you know, turn the ship around? Yeah. Yeah. And the other good news is that people are still interested in entertainment. And so whether it's with yep. humor or the arts, just the arts in general, we have the ability to grab the attention of a hungry audience. And so, Absolutely. you know, if we can continue to go in sideways, use humor, use the unexpected, I think that that's a part of humor that, that really works in these situations. The film Don't Look Up was a great example. It was, you know, by by no means the perfect movie, but certainly, you know, Adam McKay was able to take something that is people just want to ignore, want to forget about, want to put their head in the sand and put it out there in such a way. And I love the statement about, you know, what it said about those few people in power who believe that somehow it won't affect them. And of course saying, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it kind of will. You may not even mm -hmm. get it even at the end. You know, you being the person that thinks that in the short term they're winning and then there isn't yep. any long term. But we, we there's so much that we can do. So how, you know, we'll have all this stuff in the show notes, but tell the audience how they can, where they should go first, how they can get involved and take advantage of the content you're putting out and so forth. Yeah. Well, the, the podcast itself will be available anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's called Climate Change and Other Small Talk. And we have a whole sort of website interface as well, climatechangeandothersmalltalk.com, where folks can, you know, dive deeper into the themes and look at the episodes and, um, uh, you know, learn more about the writers and the creative teams from around the world. There's the Take Action pages I mentioned. And there's also, we're really encouraging folks to sign up to the newsletter because the newsletter is a little more akin to kind of a zine that will arrive in your inbox once a week for you know for the duration of the project for nine weeks and it's kind of the it's the um the bonus content and the sort of diving deeper into lots of things there's also going to be um uh, a listening party uh guide and a discussion guide. So we're encouraging folks to go, okay, how fun and unique and different would your next dinner party be if you hosted a listening party, pick one of the episodes, you could even do it four times or pick a couple of the episodes, they're short, and sit around in the living room and listen to the episodes together and then have a conversation and discussion. And both, you know, sort of get to enjoy the fun of the series and then engage each other in conversation as well. And we've got a bunch of resources. That's the guide for how to host a listening party and also a discussion guide towards that as well. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.